This is Lock and Code, a Malwarebytes podcast. I'm your host, David Reese. This week, we're going to talk about last week, starting with the news. On Malwarebytes Labs, we dug into reports that threat actors had launched a malware campaign against users in Germany, targeting them with the GootKit banking Trojan, which can record keystrokes and record video as a way to steal sensitive financial information. After learning about the reports, we searched our own data, and lo and behold, we saw the attacks in real time. In just a matter of days, we had remediated more than 600 unique machines that had been infected. The attack method itself was somewhat novel. Threat actors managed to hack websites to mimic online forums where German-speaking users were looking for help on specific topics. Uh, Imagine asking Google a question, and then finding a page that looks like Quora, the online Q&A forum, along with a thread that looks like it has an answer to your exact issue. On that fake forum, German-speaking users were subtly directed to download a zip archive. Little did they know, they'd already taken the first step to installing the dangerous banking Trojan. Convinced to accept something allegedly helpful, but actually dangerous? Bravo! I think that's the first time I've heard of such a precise Trojan attack vector, inspired by that big ol' horse so many years ago. We also provided readers with a roundup of recent email spam activity. Spoiler alert, spam was weird last month. One campaign involved an email that wildly varied in tone from one sentence to the next. It opened with a stalker-like introduction, quote, I am watching you every day, end quote, and then transitioned to an invitation, quote, let's talk here. End quote. Afterward, it asked readers if they have a rich, intimate fantasy. Perhaps the most puzzling aspect, though, was the lame payoff. Malicious links within the spam emails directed users to graphic porn games and adult dating websites. That's it. Separately, yet another spam email dumbfounded us with its lazy approach. The malicious email directed readers to a Google form titled Untitled Form, which included one question titled Untitled Question, and one selection option for that question, option one. Really putting the F in effort here. But importantly, listeners should know that fake emails claiming to come from PayPal are still making the rounds. The emails we found this week included a fake warning of a temporarily closed account due to suspicious activity and a request for updating your account info. As always, block these emails, report them, and delete them. Honestly, though, great week in spam mail. Excellent reading material. We then reported on the growing field of deep learning, which is a branch of machine learning that attempts to impart higher, human-level thinking to how algorithms make their decisions. And while that has all the makings for a good episode of Black Mirror, so far, deep learning has been used for more utilitarian purposes, like optimizing traffic lights, recognizing speech patterns, and improving the images captured by smartphone cameras. So, for the meantime, sit back, relax, and don't fret over the potentially disastrous outcomes of imbuing algorithms with both our advantages and our flaws. That specific anxiety is far, far away. Like, at least a week away. 
We also informed readers about the many ways that they can be scammed through Facebook. For starters, scammers love impersonating the company itself to get unsuspecting victims to enter their login information on a fraudulent website or as requested by a malicious email or SMS message. Second, there are tons of scam ad campaigns on Facebook, which advertise sometimes non-existent products. Third, scammers sometimes set up fake music festival or concert streaming pages with either fake donation links or a fake itinerary of upcoming events that require a user to input personal information to access. And fourth, scammers love to hack into a legitimate account and then ask that user's contacts for money over PayPal. Being online seems nice. Finally, we reported on a ransomware attack that closed Baltimore County Public Schools on Wednesday, November 25th, the day before the Thanksgiving holiday in the U.S. The attack affected about 175 schools, programs, and centers, which included more than 115,000 students and 18,000 employees. The cyber attack badly damaged the school district, which did not resume instruction until the following Wednesday. There's no joke here. And in fact, this issue is so serious that our main story today addresses it. In cybersecurity news across the world, the Register obtained an exclusive report that a Cayman Islands-based investment fund exposed the entirety of its backup files to the public. The files included details of its members and the values of the shares they hold. I'd make a sophisticated joke here about Cayman Islands investment and banking structures if I was rich enough for the tax code there to benefit me. The U.S. Department of Justice announced that a 21-year-old man had been sentenced to three years in prison for charges that he stole proprietary information from Nintendo, including details about the company's latest console, the Nintendo Switch, before its release. The California man actually boasted about his exploits online, which... Come on, man. ZDNet reported that the Vietnamese government may be sponsoring a group of threat actors to target Mac OS users with a new type of backdoor malware. The aims are unclear, but experts believe that these potential espionage attacks are meant to aid Vietnamese-owned companies. Aw, how thoughtful. HelpNet Security offered a primer on why the healthcare industry has become such a growing target for ransomware threat actors, and how to fight back. The short answer for better protection? Restrict user access, segment networks, use endpoint detection and protection solutions, and raise employees' security awareness. You'll excuse me if I don't make any jokes about the healthcare industry right now. Don't know if you've heard about the pandemic, but we're kind of on high alert. Finally, the nonprofit Times wrote that one of Philadelphia's largest hunger relief organizations was scammed out of nearly $1 million through a complex phishing scam. Who attacks a food bank? Or a hospital, for that matter? Can't y'all just attack one another? It will still be exciting. I promise. Our main story today concerns education. Education faced a crisis in the United States this year. The looming threat of the coronavirus, which spreads easily in highly populated enclosed rooms, forced schools across the country to develop new strategies for teaching. No longer safe in hallways and classrooms, many teachers, administrators, and students moved their jobs and their routines online. Hybrid models of education emerged. Some students returned to their classroom. Some met only in Zoom conference rooms. Some teachers utilized their classroom space to at least broadcast their lessons to students who were watching from their bedrooms, from cluttered kitchen tables, 
or from living room couches. The dramatic stress of this transition has been documented. Teachers are working more hours than ever, and parents are pulled between work and 24-7 childcare. But today, we're going to talk about how this transition has stressed the cybersecurity posture of schools and school districts. And that means more than just talking about unsecured devices or reported malware attacks. It also means looking at increased IT staff workload and the growing strain on teachers who have to serve as personal IT helpers for students and parents. This year, Malwarebytes ran two parallel surveys of students and IT decision makers at schools across the country. We'll be discussing some of those findings from our new report released today, Lessons in Cybersecurity, How Education Coped in the Shift to Distance Learning. But, of course, we also want to get a hands-on perspective from an expert to help us better understand the challenges schools have faced and how they can protect themselves in the second half of the school year. We're speaking today with Doug Levin, founder of the K-12 Cybersecurity Resource Center and advisor to the K-12 Security Information Exchange, or K-12-6. Doug, welcome to the show. Thanks very much, David. I'm pleased to be with you. To begin with, can you tell us just a little bit about yourself? Sure. So I think the short way to explain my background is that I've spent my career working at the intersection of technology, education, and public policy. I'm based in the Washington, D.C. area and have served in a number of pretty high-profile roles in the space, including as executive director of the State Educational Technology Directors Association earlier in my career. In my work, I've become increasingly concerned about the cybersecurity posture of school districts. And in fact, when I started seeing more and more public news stories about school incidents, I went looking for reliable data sources on what those incidents were like and whether they were happening more frequently and how severe they were. And when I couldn't find it, I decided to assemble what I could on a map and to publish that. And several years later now, I find myself running the K-12 Cybersecurity Resource Center as a pro bono contribution to the community to raise awareness about the issues facing schools and to help provide them some resources and guidance. And more recently, to collaborate with the Global Resilience Federation to launch a K-12-specific threat intelligence information sharing community, K-12-6. So it's, it's exciting that we're gaining momentum. Of course, it's a challenge, though, for all of us in helping to sort of protect schools from, from these risks. And COVID, as you mentioned, has really thrown a, a wrench in the works of, of this school year and you know, made, made things doubly or, or triply difficult for, for those who work in school districts. Thank you for just sharing that. Let's get right into it. In transitioning to distance learning, what immediate concerns did schools have that you knew about that could predictably lead to both cybersecurity and IT issues? Right. So schools first started dealing with the pandemic in the spring, the end of last school year. In many cases, the decision to send students home and try to continue remote learning in some form or fashion was made literally on a dime. So students were in school one week and the next week they were home. And the amount of work then that was required by teachers, but also by district IT staff was tremendous. Standing up 
online learning systems, figuring out video conferencing platforms, ensuring that educators and students had access to devices, to the internet. It was a very, very challenging time. And by all reports, it was not a terrific experience for students in terms of their learning. I think everyone was trying to do the best they could, but it was certainly not ideal circumstances for everyone. So in the spring, the primary concern for schools was just keeping the lights on for learning. Um, Issues of cybersecurity were very much not to the fore. Applications that would normally have undergone much greater scrutiny were being recommended for use by school districts. So these are tools like Zoom and many, many others that did not go through the normal you know, approval process. We also had the challenge of providing remote technical support to individuals. And that led to then the loosening up of permissions and controls for devices, right? So more individuals were granted administrator rights to install software or to install printer drivers or other things that they needed. There was the challenge of, you know, sort of managing passwords across all these new services and devices. And so it was a very challenging time, particularly with respect to cybersecurity, because access was really the number one issue. And so in order to accommodate that, lots of things were loosened up in order just to allow learning to continue. That sounds so similar to something that Malwarebytes found out back in the summer, actually, about businesses that transition to working from home, which is that, right, the immediate need was keep the business running. And the immediate need, it sounds like, for schools is to fulfill that mandate of providing education. And so, of course, those priorities, they, they remain priorities. And so we saw similar things in businesses. We saw businesses roll out software and not give it the standard review time not do a cybersecurity and online privacy review. And like you said, increase access, administrator rights. Knowing this, right? And as schools started to begin to figure it out in the spring and and then moving forward, were there steps that schools could have taken to implement a cybersecure model of distance learning before it started again in the fall? So I would say yes and no. I think if we could have sat back in... June or July, and had a crystal ball into knowing what the state of the world would be in October and November, I think you know, we would have understood at that time that probably many more schools would be offering remote education than we, certainly than we had hoped. And in many cases, school districts plan to be in person and then really on very short notice shifted again to be remote. And, and still to this day, we're seeing school districts ping pong between being in-person and remote, just depending on the state of the COVID outbreaks in local communities and, and the advice and guidance from local government officials. And it's very different from place to place around the country in that regard. So given what schools knew from public health officials and from policymakers, they were in a tough position. I think if they did know that that they were going to be in this situation, I think absolutely there are steps they could have taken. I think that we would have wanted to have seen some amount of training and awareness 
building going on, particularly given that educators and students would be working on untrusted networks, right? And connecting remotely to school systems. They'd likely be using these devices probably for personal benefit as well, right? And so those devices, districts may have want to thought about, think about ways to sort of increase the trust they have in those devices, whether whether by deploying end-user anti-malware, antivirus systems, or dramatically restricting their rights to access sensitive systems that are district managed. I think that allowing for VPN access to critical systems would have been important and making sure they had enough licenses to do that. I certainly think they could have spent the time over the summer in other scenarios, reviewing all of those apps and services that they deployed quickly that they didn't have a chance to do. I think that they also could have sort of swept back through the permissions that they loosened and maybe thought about the ones they could tighten back up, right? But it's not clear to me in many cases that that is actually what happened, given the decision-making around whether schools would be opening or not. It's also the case, and I think one of the things that really hamstrung school districts about this event, this pandemic, was that school districts were not, most school districts were not already in a place where they had a functioning cybersecurity team, where they had a robust incident response plan, where they were adhering to one of the national cybersecurity frameworks that people use to manage these risks, like the NIST cybersecurity framework, right? And so in many respects, school districts, cybersecurity operations are relatively immature. You know, they may not have, particularly smaller school districts may not have dedicated security staff. So this is just one more thing on their plate. And so, you know, I'm, I'm very sort of sympathetic to the effect of dealing with this pandemic, but it is gotten much more difficult for schools because they did not have, you know, the sort of necessary policies and procedures in place before the pandemic happened. We at Malwarebytes have a report that just came out and we asked IT decision makers at schools about just a few of the, the many things that you actually mentioned, some of the great ideas for those best practices. And we found pretty broadly that, you know, many schools did not engage in the best practices that, that we had asked them about. As an example, half of schools, 50.7% said that no one, so not students or teachers or staff or guests, was required to enroll in cybersecurity training right before the, before the fall school year began. And we also found that nearly half of all schools, 46.7%, didn't require any additional cybersecurity measures for anyone connecting to the school network. So antivirus tools were not installed. Again, cybersecurity training was not required. And if there were updated policies on distance learning, it was not required to do like a read-through. And again, that's just a few When we asked students, we also learned that VPNs were not often required on their side to connect to a school's network. But again, that's just students. There could be a a discrepancy between that and, and whether teachers had to do it. What I'm getting at here is we found some similar things. We found from our report that schools did not engage in some of these best practices. But from what you're talking about, it sounds like, right, it's easier said than done. It's easier said to let's do this, then to actually roll it out, not just because of the work, but because of the unpredictability 
that, like you said, many schools thought they would be in person come September, come August. And many schools, if I'm not mistaken, are still dealing with that, right? I believe some schools are still saying things like, we're going to switch to a different model this month or next month in January or February. Is that happening? And is that still playing a, a major role in schools trying to more or less play catch up with their cybersecurity? It's definitely a challenge, and it is absolutely still the case that it's going on. You know, the holidays are particularly challenging, right? Because, you know, historically, people would travel large distances and then meet with large numbers of people, right? And then come back. So it's a challenge that absolutely is still facing schools, and they are still making decisions every week around the country about whether to be open and in person, whether to be remote. Certainly many parents have very strong feelings about it one way or the other, right? And so it does remain a fluid situation. One of the other things that I think from a cybersecurity perspective that's been really difficult in this transition, you know, to this state that that people didn't expect, sort of really shines a light on the lack of resiliency of of school district IT operations. Mm -hmm. And so when they do experience incidents, they're felt much more quickly, much more widely, and much more significantly than they are felt when students are physically in school. And, you know, the reason for that is that if there's an incident that happens while students are in school and maybe they lose access to the network, you know, the teachers are able to tell students just to shut off their devices and then to pivot to some sort of in-person classroom exercise, right? They're able to continue with teaching and learning. Parents may or may not ever find out there was an incident that happened that disrupted the lesson plan. In a time of remote learning, when an incident is experienced, Students will lose connection to that classroom, to that teacher. They may not be able to communicate. And then, of course, they immediately go to their parents and say, school's not happening. I don't know why. And the parents are disrupted from their work activities, say. And so then that just results in phone calls back to the school district, right? And, and so things spiral much more quickly. And so it's, it is a very fragile situation. And school district IT was relatively fragile before, but, you know, the shift to remote learning has really put a spotlight on, in, in many respects, the, the lack of resiliency of, of school district technology. I wanted to go back to something you mentioned a little bit before, and, and that you noted just right now, right, which is there's a lack of resiliency and that also a, a lack of hewing to, you know, a specific framework that that lack of framework was in place before the pandemic. It's probably a really big question with like tons of answers here, but why is that? I think there's two two answers to the question in short. The first is that while there's been technology in schools for a long time, and certainly I have kids who are in and graduating college, and back when I was in school, we, we, you know, we were starting to introduce PCs, at least in a computer lab, to the school. But increasingly, school districts are relying on technology, not only for teaching and learning, but for their district operations. They're very much in the midst of a digital transformation, like many other industries, but unlike other industries, probably lagging in terms of the speed with which they're doing that. And it really has only been in recent years, right, maybe the last five years, that school districts have really begun to embrace the sorts of digital transformation in the back office as well as in the classroom. 
So the first response is that while they may have suffered incidents before, they were more of an annoyance than anything else, right? Now they're much more significant because much more information and data and business happen on those systems and on those networks. I think the second reason, and it's related to the first, that school districts are less mature in their cybersecurity posture is that it's largely been not on the radar screen of school administrators or education policymakers. There's been a lot of attention to issues of student data privacy, concerns about what information is collected by, about students, who it is shared with, what purposes it can be used for, but a very odd blind spot in terms of how that data should be secured. And you know, the reason for that is that the only federal education law that might require school districts to think about cybersecurity was passed in 1974, originally, <laughs> FERPA. And that's back when you were worried about protecting information in a filing cabinet, right? <laughs> and so policy has not caught up with the practice of you know, technology use in school districts. So it's, you know, there's, there are no requirements. There, are, there is no baseline practice that is required of school districts like there might be of financial institutions or healthcare institutions mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. organizations in the defense industry or you know, utilities companies. And as a result, it is only taken more seriously in those places where you have a forward-looking leader who understands these issues and the risks, or unfortunately, in the cases where they've already experienced a significant incident, right? And they've had a significant loss of money or a significant exposure of data. And, you know, that has caught their attention enough that then they have invested in some expertise, right? And put some controls in place. So those would be the, the, my sort of two big answers to that. You know, there's probably lots of ways we can sort of dig into that, but it's a changing world for education and we're still catching up. We at Malwarebytes looked at a lot of the data that we had gathered and we were looking at from the perspective of, right, what are the consequences? What are the consequences of this, of this framework that you kind of just described, but really targeting on, on oh, what, what is the consequence of not taking on cybersecurity best practices? And I wanted to better understand from your perspective, what, what is the consequence of, of lacking, you know, cybersecurity frameworks of not being able to, I think, even assuredly embrace certain cybersecurity practices because, like we said, the, the model is changing every day. You know, they might go back to school next week. Again, what what are the consequences here of, of not being able to even have the time to know that your decision is the right decision to make to roll out cybersecurity trainings, to review software, to, you know, maybe suggest antivirus, to set up more restrictive access rights? What happens in those situations when, when all of that doesn't line up? That's a great question. So, I mean, in short, in the work that I've done, I've seen school districts that have suffered the theft of millions of dollars, you know, that have been scammed out of their, you know, sort of operational budgets that would have been directed towards teaching and learning and lowering class size and putting in a new library or new, new school building. I've seen identities compromised, both of students and of educators, 
You know, that data that is stolen is is used to file false tax returns, open credit lines. While it may be counterintuitive to some folks, the private information of students, particularly young students, is in some circumstances maybe even more valuable to criminals than that of adults uh, because they're not monitoring their credit. They're less likely to be alerted to an issue that they're facing. I've seen harassment and doxing. I've seen school districts that have had to close their doors, literally turn away students for days or weeks at a time because their IT systems were down without hope of being restored. And it's a whole range of, frankly, pretty concerning outcomes. And in my work, I, I often try to equate it for school districts to the risks of a physical security event on campus or the risks of a natural disaster or extreme weather event, right? And for physical security events, you know, thanks, unfortunately, uh, very much unfortunately to, to school shootings that have been in the news and that have occurred, you know, most school districts have a plan in place that they have tested, uh, that they routinely test, for how to protect the physical safety of students and staff on their campuses. They know exactly how they're going to handle an extreme weather event, whether that's snow or hurricane or flooding, right? They have emergency plans in place, they practice them, and they devote resources to them and time to developing them. We do not yet have that same sort of recognition for cybersecurity risk. It's only a matter of time, but, you know, until we until schools do put those sorts of plans in place, you know, we're going to keep seeing schools compromised and individuals harmed as a result. Those consequences that you just spoke about are so much bigger, so much more universal than I assumed. Like 100%, they're so much bigger. Our findings from our survey, right, we're focusing so much on things that have happened since the fall school year began at schools that were doing any hybrid model of distance learning. And we were focused right on things that we thought were 100% related. For instance, we found that, you know, 72% of our respondents said that uh, IT workers faced an increased workload. More than half of all teachers had to serve as personal IT helpers for teachers and parents. Nearly a third of all teachers uh, and students experienced the, you know, the Zoom bombing attack. But those are like really direct things that you could draw a line to. And some of the stuff you were talking about, like you said, is much more akin to natural disaster planning, you know, looking at things that are going to remove millions of dollars, are going to end the potential for a library to be built, are going to, like you said, keep kids out of school, you know, whether that's a digital classroom or a physical classroom. These are enormous, enormous consequences. And I think it's important to try and understand here, what can schools do, right? And, and particularly, I wanted to talk about one smaller segment. In our survey, we found that 20% of our respondents said they faced challenges in convincing the school to invest in cybersecurity. And that could have been in investing in antivirus tools or rolling out cybersecurity training. So for that small segment, what can they do for what seem like, again, enormous, enormous consequences that are even kind of hard to wrap our heads around. It's difficult. It's definitely a difficult situation. I think there are things that individual school districts can do and those who work with school districts can do. But I also think in some ways this is a problem that is 
only going to be solved by collective action outside the level of the school district. So let me talk about both things. So I think within a school district, I think it is absolutely important to educate school leadership, particularly the superintendent and members of the school board, about the threats that are facing schools. You could do that in a couple of ways. Certainly, the K-12 Cybersecurity Resource Center tracks cybersecurity incidents that have affected school districts. And on the map, you're likely to find school districts that are quite local to yours, right? And so, you know, you could talk about the experiences of neighbors and how it is likely that, you know, it's just a matter of time before everyone experiences an incident. I think that it's also important to reach out to those school leaders because they're often targeted in phishing scams, right? Because they are highly placed, right? They have the trust of the community or they have access to sensitive systems. But certainly I wouldn't, I wouldn't wait to think about building awareness and training. Those are not necessarily expensive to do. I would absolutely think about the beginning an incident response plan. I think one of the places that school districts have a lot of place to improve is around password management policies and practices, right? And to the extent that, you know, you could investigate, folks could investigate the use of password managers or implementing multi-factor authentication, you know, for their services, so much the better, right? So there's a lot of steps that, that folks can take that are small, that make a difference. I wouldn't let perfect be the get in the way of just trying to do better day by day, because I think you are sort of trying to to eat an elephant one bite at a time. But I think sort of more broadly, it's going to be important for school districts to band together, to talk about their shared needs and concerns, and advocate for support, right? And to advocate for support either from their states, right? Their state department of education or, or other state agencies, or even the federal government. And in fact, the cybersecurity concerns of school districts have risen to the federal level now because some of the incidents have been so so horrific and expensive Mm -hmm. that at the federal level, the federal government is looking at how it can support school districts and provide resources, new resources to school districts that would help them build their capacity and implement the plans they need to have in place, as well as then to provide support for tooling that they don't have access to, right? And so it's really, I think, you know, there's two things that need to happen. There's there's the work that needs to happen locally. And then I think there's work that school districts need to do in collaboration with each other. We are halfway through the school year and 2021 is coming right up. I think for schools everywhere, you know, budget constraints or not, is there anything they can reasonably do to get cybersecurity? And, and maybe that's, we talk a little bit more about what collective action even looks like. You know, where, how do they reach out to their to their neighbor schools? You know, is it relying on like the, you know, K-12 security information exchange where there's a threat intelligence sharing model and finding, okay, this happened to the school down the street in our zip code. We have to get together. I'm just kind of trying to find advice. You know, these are, these are really good things. You know, band together, try and talk to the government. But it also seems like some of these things are, are so large, right? I, I can't imagine how, let's say I'm a teacher, right? I can't imagine what role I have in trying to make sure that the Department of Education on a national level pays attention to me. And so what does 2021 look like? 
Right. So one thing that, you know, that I do in my work in tracking cybersecurity incidents is that I actually do annual reports, you know, myself of the state of cybersecurity for the past calendar year. And, you know, what I'll preview for you is that 2020 is looking to be a pretty rough year for school districts. Mm -hmm. But this is the second year running, frankly, that we've seen historic levels of incidents affecting schools. So even before the pandemic, school districts were starting to struggle. And in part because threat actors are increasingly targeting school districts specifically, right? Schools are, are no longer just collateral damage in sort of these mass phishing campaigns. There are criminals who are doing specific research on school districts using fairly sophisticated techniques and knowledge of school district operations to you know, carry out their, their work. And that's deeply concerning. So I do think that awareness building, broadly speaking, is still very important. And I think that if this is something that you care about, if you're a teacher, uh, if you're a parent, if you work in a school district, I think it's important to communicate to the school district and to the leadership that cybersecurity is something you care about. You'd like to learn more about how the district protects its IT systems and data and students and teachers. And to you know continue to highlight that this is something important. If a school district is going out for a bond that will involve the purchase of technology, ask questions about what resources will be used to secure that technology and keep the users safe, right? So I do think awareness building is very important. I think there's a lot of personal practice that people can learn about and take on best practices, uh, like you suggested. You know, there's, there's not a silver bullet solution. This is something that's going to require a, a lot of years and a lot of change in behavior. You know, if you work in a school district, I would strongly encourage to participate in a sharing community, right? Whether that's K-12-6 or another community of your peers where you can confidentially share information about the threats you're facing and about how to mitigate them in real time, right? In a trusted way. And I think that's so, so important because in my work, I absolutely see patterns of incidents and attacks. So if a threat actor is successful against one school district, they will apply the exact same techniques and procedures against other school districts. And so it's really important that we sort of open up these lines of communications, that we make it safe for people to talk about and share this information, to help them understand that this is not something that they need to face alone, right? It's going to be very difficult to think about solving this problem if if we need to have a chief information security officer in every school district around the country. Those folks are in high demand no matter what, no matter where they are. Education field, unfortunately, does not pay what it should. And, you know, in many cases, school districts are still trying to understand why they might need someone like that on their staff. So I don't want to be too much of a a downer. I I do tend to look at it as there's a lot of upside for those folks who would like to help and and step forward and and show some leadership in the space. And I think it's pretty easy to make some quick wins because we're relatively immature and that, you know, over time we'll get better and better at helping school districts to protect their 
their communities because their you know the reliance on technology is not going to go away even once this COVID thing is behind us. Doug, thank you so much for your time, and I just wanted to thank you again for being on our show today. My pleasure. To our listeners at home, we'll talk to you again in a month. We're taking a break during the holidays, but we promise we will be back with more episodes starting in January. Thank you again for listening.